so glad uh, you are here. This is uh, the, the fifth Sunday in like a five-Sunday series in the Gospel of John chapter 17. And I got to admit, it, it feels like a lot of pressure. This is the last sermon in, in this little chapter, and I feel like you know, what if I don't say it all, or what if I don't wrap up all the loose ends and uh, leave you hanging? And um, well, then I thought, well, I could extend the series. You're like, no, don't do that. And then uh, I thought, well, I could, you know, it's been about seven years since I preached this before. Maybe I could preach it again in three and we could go over it again. But I really don't experience the Spirit like feeling like I left anything out. Uh, I don't don't experience the Holy Spirit saying, hey, you need to extend this or, or do it again sooner. Uh, After all, preaching isn't really about being exhaustive, it's about being transformative, okay? And that got me to thinking again about the position that this prayer is in in the Gospel of John. You know, this prayer takes place hours before Jesus is arrested and just the, the day before he's crucified. Of all the things he could pray, why did he pray these words? Why did he pray these words at this critical time in his life? And suddenly the direction for my sermon kind of fell in my lap. Rather than try and cram in all the, uh, the dense theology that's here or tie up all the loose ends, I want to leave this, ser- this series simply, and I'm going to give you two goals. So all of you, didact- uh, you know, teachers out there, they just want clarity. Okay, here are the two goals for the evening. First, I want to make this prayer prayable for you. You've read this over the weeks as we've been walking through this series. It's cumbersome. There's a lot of wordiness in there, and sometimes Jesus is praying for us, for himself, and how do we actually pray this prayer? So I want to make it a a clear way for you and I to walk away from this series feeling like we can enter into prayer through Jesus' prayer. That's goal number one. Goal number two, as we come to the end of John 17, I want to leave us with no doubt about what is most important to Jesus' heart as is revealed in this prayer, okay? Those two simple goals, and we're gonna take them in reverse order. So we're gonna start looking at what is the most important thing to Jesus, uh, what is on his heart as, uh, as we finish out this prayer. Based on the first 23 verses we've looked at, there's 26 in the chapter, in the four weeks we've approached, uh, that we've, we've gone over the first 23 verses, if we just take the first 23 verses, we might come to the conclusion That what Jesus wants most, what's most important to him is that the Father would glorify the Son, that the Son can glorify the Father. In other words, Jesus prays early on in this prayer that the Father would help him accomplish the goal of the cross and the resurrection, that that, that most difficult thing in the world to do for him, that the Father would see him through it, okay? That's one option. Or we might think that the most important thing is is us, like his disciples, his church. After all, Jesus calls us, his disciples, gifts from God. You are a gift from God the Father to God the Son. Mind blown. And in this prayer, he is exceptionally gracious about his description of the disciples. You know, he says that they they believed in me fully, uh, and that they were obedient to the word. Really? Those, Those disciples, the guys who continually failed you and then will betray you here in about a chapter? Yes, because Jesus seeks the positive about the people. He sees what they can become. Another option is that the most important thing to Jesus in this prayer is that the Father would protect us and fill us with joy in the truth of his word so that we would be Jesus's witnesses to the world. 
And we could definitely make the case, on the other hand, that Jesus' primary goal in this prayer is that we would be unified, that the church would be one around the world so that the world would know that the Father sent the Son. Now, each one of these options by themselves would be glorious. Taken as a whole, they would be abundantly gracious and extremely dignifying to you and I. But we still haven't hit on the primary desire of Jesus as it's summarized in this prayer. Hear it in solution in the final three verses of the prayer. I invite you just to close your eyes and allow these words to wash over. I'm going to read the end of Jesus' prayer, John 17, 24 through 26. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O oh, righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them, and will make it known, so that the love with which you loved me may be in them also, and I in them. Thank you, Lord, for praying this prayer. Thank you, certainly, for revealing to us how much you want us to be with you, how much you want us to enter into this loving relationship. Thank you for that information but thank you also that you prayed this prayer to the Father who hears and answers your prayers. Thank you that this is a possibility for us. As we walk through the text together, Holy Spirit, would you, would you help us to see how this is possible, how this is good, how this is what we were made for? Amen. In the Synoptic Gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Jesus prays in a garden before he's arrested. And in all three of those accounts, Jesus is praying in groans, in silences, and at one point he prays in agony that if it be the Father's will that this suffering he's about to undergo could be taken away from him, that there might be another way. And then we hear the famous words that Jesus repeats in all three of those Gospels, but your will be done, Father, not my will. That's the mantra for every disciple of Jesus. When praying to God about ourselves, our, 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 our stance ought to be, I want this, Lord, but your will, not mine, be done. Here's what I'd like, but it's not about me. Your will be done. But in John's gospel, we get to hear Jesus praying, not just for himself, but for you and for me and for the other disciples all around the world. And when he prays for other people, he makes his, his will known. He says, I will that they also whom you have given me will be with me where I am. With regard to this verse, Handley Mool writes, is there any greater, more satisfying evidence of an absolute affection than the known desire 
of perpetual companionship. I feel like I need to say that in like a Scottish accent or something like that, but he's saying, is there any greater affection that Jesus could give us than the knowledge that of his last big prayer before he goes to the cross, he prays that you and I would be with him in relationship forever where he is. In other words, Jesus didn't just come to earth like some commando to pull off the biggest rescue mission in history, only then to, to ascend to the Father and say, well, I got you guys out of this mess, good luck, peace out, hope you do well. Jesus didn't become human, make friends, love people, suffer and die as a mere act of duty. He deeply loves us. He chooses us on purpose. He desires us. And his last prayer before his arrest and crucifixion is that we would be with him where he is forever. Feel that for a minute. One of the worst feelings in the world is the feeling of being rejected. And we all have experienced that feeling and unfortunately will experience that feeling. We are created to love and to be loved. We're created for community, but with community comes opportunity for disappointment and opportunity for pain. Don't we know that all too well? The truth is no person can fulfill all of our needs. No one person can fulfill all my needs. The closest thing that comes on earth is sitting right there, and she's amazing. But no one person is designed to fulfill all your needs. And at the same level, some of us have been let down and let down so hard that we have scars on the inside that feel like they may never be healed. They're just covered over with scar tissue and we don't go near them. So what an amazing thing it is then that the one person who won't let us down, the one person who is actually capable, like morally capable, whose heart is so pure he can actually follow through, what an amazing thing it is that Jesus desires that we would be with him in relationship forever. Hear his prayer. You are wanted, you are desirable, you are sought after, you are loved. And Jesus has prayed this prayer to the Father that you and I would be with him, that you would see his glory, the same glory he had before the foundation of the world. That's awesome, great, what does that mean? Do I need a passport? What's the weather like? What should I pack in my bag before, when are we going? How do we get there? We're not talking about a destination, which is important to say, because I've heard it said that this is about a destination, okay? This is not talking about a destination, it's talking about a relationship. In the beginning of John's gospel, okay, remember what I'm always talking about when we study the scriptures? It starts with a C. Context, context. So we're in John's gospel, John 17. Our first level of context needs to be the, the passages around us and needs to be the passages in the book of John. Okay, in the beginning of the book of John, <clears throat> Jesus has been baptized by John the Baptist, and then he starts going on a journey, he starts walking, and some of his early disciples, before they become his disciples, start to follow him, and he's just going, going, who knows how long, it seems like a long time. Then Jesus turns to these dudes and says, what are you seeking? And they say, where are you abiding? Rabbi, where are you abiding? 
Sounds like a funny question. Like of all the things you want to ask this interesting rabbi who's doing these things and just got baptized by John and John the Baptist says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now you're following him. He asks you, what are you seeking? And you come up with, where are you staying? Where are you abiding? They weren't talking about location. Like, hey rabbi, where's your crib? Do you have a pool? Can we come over? Where are you abiding means, where do you draw your source? Where does your true north? Where do you derive your authority? Who are your people? That's what uh, where are you abiding means. And throughout John's gospel, we will see, or we have seen, in Jesus' prayers and his actions and listening to his teachings that he abides where? Anyone? In the Father. It was 2010 when we last preached through John, so it's okay. We're a little rusty. He abides in the Father. That he and the Father are one is a common refrain throughout John's gospel. That the Father is the vine dresser, Jesus is the vine, and he calls us, his followers, branches. And he says, abide in me, and I in you, right? All this abiding talk. So when he prays that we might be where he is, that we might abide where he abides, before he was even in the flesh, he's talking about relationship. Okay. Anyone thinking about where the dude abides? Sorry, I just, yeah. Lebowski's in my head right now. <clears throat> okay, so you and I, Jesus prays, are invited into an intimate relationship with the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're invited into a relationship that existed in perfect love before the foundation of our planet, before creation itself, before humans were ever in history. Now, let's just pause here for a minute. There's a lot of talking going on from this guy. I want to be explicit and clear. We've been noting what Jesus has been praying about and praying for all throughout John 17. And we've drawn a conclusion, I think, about what is important to Jesus' heart. All of, these, all of these points we've been making. But I, I want to also point out what Jesus does not pray for in his final prayer, big prayer before he goes to the cross. What doesn't he pray for? Notice what he doesn't pray for. He does not pray, Father, I pray that these followers of mine and the world who will hear their message will pray the sinner's prayer or follow the four spiritual laws. He does not pray, Father, I pray that their atonement theology would be cogent, comprehensive, and concise, like John Stackhouse. He doesn't pray that our morality would be so pure that the world will know that the Father sent the Son. Now, why doesn't he pray that? That's a head-scratcher, because haven't we been taught that the gospel is all about how we are sinners and how we have been indebted, we have indebted ourselves to a perfect God who must satisfy his wrath. And since we couldn't find anyone sinless among our race, God sent his son to take the wrath for us. We who couldn't follow the rules, so the ruler sent the rule-following son to pay the debt for the rule-breakers. Isn't that the gospel we've heard? But Jesus, the manifestation of God himself, shows us a different God than a mere ruler and creator. I say mere, that's an important word, because God is a ruler and he is a creator, but that's not all that he is. In fact, that's not primarily who he is. Jesus shows us that God is a father. 
Rulers have authority motivated by order and ethics. Fathers have authority and practice authority, good ones at least, motivated by love. In his book, Delighting in the Trinity, Michael Reeves gives this illustration. If God's very identity is creator and ruler, then he needs a creation in order to rule, in order to be who he is. You understand that? If God is primarily creator and ruler, if you take away the creation and the created, then he's not those things, okay? And that sets up a really dangerous paradox. If if we primarily see God as ruler and creator, then he de facto needs us. The Bible doesn't talk anything about that, okay? The problems don't stop there, though. If God's very identity is to be the ruler, then what kind of salvation can he offer us if he decides to offer us salvation at all? And Reeves continues. He says, let me put it like this. If, if, and this, he says, and this never happens to me, uh, if some fine police officer were to catch me speeding and breaking the rules, I would be punished. And if, by chance, I was speeding and the cop didn't see me, or I evaded him in a high-speed chase and I got off scot-free, I would feel what? <sighs> Relieved. But in neither scenario would we love the police officer. Right? We might feel shame or we might feel relief, but we don't love. Now, let's say we're caught by the same police officer and the police officer lets us off scot-free. Again, the feeling is relief and thanksgiving, but it, it's not love. And ironically, Reeves finishes the quote here, ironically, that means I can never keep the greatest commandment to love the Lord my God. If all of it is is relief, it's not the same as love. Okay, end quote. But what Jesus does is invite us into relationship with the triune God. Sin broke the world and separates us from God, not because God can't be around us. See, that's where we've got it all mixed up. Jesus is God in the flesh, right? God in the flesh, fully divine, fully human. Who does Jesus spend time with? People. Let's not even talk about the sinful people yet, because everybody's sinful. He he hangs out with people. And, of course, he does also hang out with some pretty notoriously sinful people, like tax collectors. And they talk about prostitutes a lot, but he also hung out with the dudes who are soliciting these prostitutes. I would say they're worse. Okay? So, So he's hanging out with all of these kinds of people. And you never hear, and then Jesus got infected by sin's disease. He was defiled by those sins. God can be around us. In fact, Jesus infected people in the other direction. Oftentimes, sinners were around Jesus, and they were like, wow, you really know how to live. Looking at you makes me want to be a better man or a better woman, more fully human. But see, what sin does to our souls, well, let me put it like this. The triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they exist in a perfect relationship of love and generosity, perpetually outgiving, outblessing each other. Daryl Johnson says, and this, you have to know this is his quote because he said he might na- title his next book after this very thing, and so you can't use it, neither can I. This Daryl Johnson says, God is the community at the center of the universe. It's pretty good, though. That's why I like to quote it. 
Some early theologians used a Greek term to help describe what's going on in this Trinitarian relationship, and the term is perichoresis, and it's made up of two Greek terms. The, the, the prefix is peri, which simply just means around, okay? And choresis is where we get choreography, choreographer, choreograph, right? Dancing. So the, these early theologians, Greek thinkers, uh, thought of the, the Trinity in one sense as three people who are dancing around. There, there's mutuality, there's leading and following, there's giving and taking, there's joy, there's relationship. They're equal, yet like a dance, they relate to each other. The Father loves the Son so much that He trusted Him with saving the world. The Son loves the Father so much He trusted Him even into death on a cross. The Spirit loves the Father and the Son so much He's constantly seeking ways to, to outglorify the last time He glorified them both. And the good news of this message, this prayer, the, the gospel, is that this perfect community of love, the living God, has invited you and invited me to join in that relationship. Now, the problem is, our, our hearts, most of us, don't really want to dance in mutuality. We either want to take the lead, or we want to be passive, because if we take the lead, there's too much loss if we screw it up. We want what we want, but we're afraid to offer too much of ourselves in fear that our partner won't reciprocate. Isn't that how a lot of our relationships are? We're too dominant, too passive, and almost always some level of fear that we're not going to get out what we put in. Martin Luther wrote, and this is also a quote from the book Delighting in the Trinity. He writes, a sinner is a person curved in on themselves. That's what a sinner is. I could dig that definition, because I get it. A sinner is a person curved in on themselves, no longer outgoingly loving like God, no longer looking to God, but inward-looking, self-obsessed, and Luther likes this word, devilish. Such a person might well behave morally or religiously, but all they did would simply express their fundamental love for themselves. This is a real trap for us in the church because there's lots of ways we can do the right stuff for ourselves. We can get stuck in our heads by learning lots of Bible things, taking Bible classes, reading books. If we just stay there and we're not transformed, we're really just doing it for ourselves, right? Sinners or people turned in on themselves. So salvation is more, to, more than, which doesn't mean it isn't, it is this and more stuff, it's more than covering our sin. It's more than that. And salvation is more than just getting us to behave better. Once we receive the Holy Spirit and trust that we are loved infinitely by the triune God, then we can grow out of the selfishness, a wonderful side effect of salvation. And the cross and the resurrection are necessary to break the power of sin and death to, to cover us. But what does Jesus say in verse 3 of this prayer? This is eternal life, that they may know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. That's what he talks about being uh, eternal life or, or salvation is, is relationship. 
Eternal life, salvation, the gospel is about intimacy with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Lamb of God died to take away the sin of the world so that we could participate in this relationship. Okay? Or maybe you've heard, the kingdom of God is at hand. That's our core verse as a church. What does that mean? That God has made himself known. He's come. The time is fulfilled. All the prophecies about God coming and being with his people, it's been fulfilled in Jesus. It's about relationship. And in this prayer, the same idea is summed up in the words, I have made your name known to them and will make it known so that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. Because we are invited to dance with him, we're invited not only to receive his love and to love him back, but to co-love with God. I know that sounds super impractical, so consider these applications. (laughs) When you inevitably come here on a Sunday or try and crack open your Bible or try and pray, and you feel lukewarm at best, apathetic, when you don't feel like you are giving God the worship he deserves, know that God is ever being worshiped perfectly in this community of the Trinity. He is being worshiped perfectly without your help. (gasps) Pressure's off, okay. And he invites you to come in and join what's already happening It's amazing. So instead of dwelling on your inadequacies and how you feel about God or the the language you use with God or how much you know about God, instead of dwelling on all the stuff you are not, which is, we're not a lot. We can co-love God with God. So check it out. You can ask the Spirit to help you love the Father and the Son as much as the Spirit loves the Father and the Son. And you can say, Father, I know you love the Son and the Spirit so much. Would you help me to love the Son and the Spirit? And you could say, Jesus, how you love the Father and the Spirit, how you, how you respect the Spirit, how you love the... Would you help me to love God like you love God? That's still a little bit ethereal, right? We're, okay, so, so, so let's bring it down to the human element. Uh, uh, think of a spouse, a friend, a child, a co-worker, a brother or sister in Christ, someone in your life who's just really difficult to love right now. And know, based on this truth, without a doubt, that that person who's hard for you to love is loved perfectly by the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Right now, without you doing anything, they're loved perfectly. It's not up to you to love them perfectly. And maybe the first step is to imagine how God is loving that person. And maybe the next step is to say, God, would you help me to love them appropriately like you do? Help me to co-love them with you. Or consider an addiction that's beyond your control or a behavioral issue. The living God is inviting you to dance, to co-love, to ask for his power to overcome sin. See how that's so different than you and I trying to do it in all of of our flesh. It's so different than doing it separately from God. Instead, we can 
be part of what he's doing. When you consider what Jesus is praying for us, it makes me, I hope it makes you want to cry out, Father, hear his prayer. I want that. It's pretty amazing. So we come to this point, I hope I've achieved goal number one. I hope you've come to know and appreciate the good news of this prayer, that through Jesus you are invited into intimate relationship with the Father and with the Son and with the Holy Spirit. You belong to the relationship happening at the center of everything. That's point number one. Now, if you look at the front of your bulletin, you see that I've named this series, Father, Hear His Prayer, because every week we've been looking at it and seeing the things that Jesus is praying for, it's made me, and I hope you, want to say, we need that. So, Father, Hear His Prayer. But I don't think that that title works now that we're at the end, and it's kind of a, it's kind of a, a trick on you, I guess, I was doing the whole time. Because if we're invited into the very relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, if the Holy Spirit dwells in us as the church, then we can truly and appropriately say, Father, hear our prayer. Can't we? Father, hear our prayer. uh, Actually, Wayne read earlier, Joan was supposed to read, uh, she's on cello. So, so, So Wayne read from John 16, Um, 23 through 33. The first 23 says, truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. So Jesus is already priming us that this is an appropriate uh, relationship, that we don't have to go through a special priest. We don't have to go through, uh, even through Jesus. We're invited to pray to to the Father, to the Son, Holy Spirit directly. Which leads me to our second goal that I mentioned at the beginning of our time together. I want you to walk away from this series better equipped not only to understand what Jesus is praying in John 17. I want want this to actually help us, I want this to be accessible to us. For us to be able to pray with Jesus these things in our own language. And so that's how we're going to close today. If you look in your bulletin, in the very back, there should be this little pamphlet called Father hear our prayer. 